Hello and welcome to My Life on the Line, a podcast by Refcom. I'm Jack, and as always, I'm joined by Alec. On this podcast, we show the humans behind the whistle through the eyes of referees past and present, as well as the broader footballing world. Today's guest is George Lacrindis. George is a FIFA assistant referee from Australia, and he's refereed over 100 A-League games. Recently, George had an incredible achievement, which was being the assistant referee on the gold medal match at the Tokyo Olympics. Incredible. On today's podcast, we discuss George's journey to the Olympics, which wasn't as straightforward as you'd imagine. We also talk about his experience at the Olympics and what his day-to-day was like. And finally, we talk about the gold medal match. What a great achievement for a referee. I recommend a on-field review. Stop it, stop it, stop it! George, great to have you. It's really nice to have a genuine friend on the podcast, as well as someone who's had such a worldly experience of refereeing. Of course, you recently refereed the gold medal match at the Olympics, Tokyo 2020 or 2021. Congratulations and welcome to my life on the line. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Obviously, you recently had a huge achievement in your career which is refereeing the gold medal match. Referees aspire for their whole lives to do those big games on the world stage, the World Cup, the Olympics. But how you got to that point is an interesting story, and I'd love to unpack that with you emotionally, physically, and get your thoughts. So you left Australia during COVID, well before the Olympics, expecting just to go to the Champions League, an Asian Champions League game. Yep. And then your world turned upside down. Do you want to talk us through that process and we can explore it with you? Yeah, so football in the last few years has really been turned upside down um, with COVID, right? It's been crazy. Mm. So I was appointed to go to the Asian Champions League in Bangkok, uh, group stage matches uh, with Sean Evans. so we were looking forward to it. Obviously, Champions League is Champions League. It's fantastic football, top teams, top clubs. But at the same time, it's hotel quarantine, lockdown. Um, All know. the fun stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Like what you look yeah. forward to, right? That was a hub. Yep. So in the AFC, they do the Champions League in a hub, which is obviously very different to in Europe. And that's due to cost, distance, travel requirements. Yeah, so normally um, the Champions League is a just... Same as the European Champions League, it's you know, group stages, you go and do one match, you come back home, um, it's a four or five day trip and you're back at work again. But now with COVID, of course, um, we have to do hubs and do quarantine and um, when we were in Bangkok, actually, we were literally bound to our rooms the whole time. Um, so I couldn't even go see Sean, uh, couldn't go watch a DVD with him or watch the footy with him. Um, I had to literally be in my room and work and do whatever I had to do in my room sort of thing. So um, it wasn't very glamorous to say the least, but um, football was fantastic and we had a great opportunity to impress over there. So that's basically where we were at at the time or where, where I was at um, mentally thinking, this is it, I'm gonna go over there, do two, three matches max and then come back home and back to work and back to all the cool stuff. There would have been almost daunting right because you're going through all these elite level matches and you obviously have to face challenges you have to train you got the games and uh, then you have the post game the pre-game 
all different mental states every referee goes through at all levels. And doing that in lockdown, not even being able to see your teammates, I mean, that would have been a challenge. Uh, how did you deal with that? Did that impact at all the way you approached the game? I think it didn't really impact that. It was good that we could get out and train every day. So every morning we'd get up at 6, mm. 6.30 and we'd get out the training track. So that was one positive and you get to talk to each other out there and and um, think about what we're, how, what we're going to do next. And obviously we've got communication through phones and stuff, but you're right. You're going back home, back, well, not back, home, back to the hotel room. <laughs> And, if yeah, only. <laughs> and there's, there's nothing to do. Like, what do I do now? I mean, how do I stay fit? <laughs> you know, like I'm doing one hour of running a day. How do yeah. I stay mentally fit, first of all, being in my room and not being able to talk to anyone, an actual human? And how, what do I do before I go out for a match? It's not the same as going out for a coffee with Jack or Ali, you know, yeah, <laughs> before oh. my match on the A-League. You know, it's um, it was definitely very mentally challenging, I have to say that. It was probably the hardest I've ever... Uh, most difficult time I've ever felt doing a match over there. But at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's COVID. Yeah. Did you feel that physically? You talked about not being able to go for a coffee before the game. And that's a big part of my routine for me on game day. I'll go for a walk, have a coffee, relaxes me, gets me in the right space. Did you feel that when you went to warm up on, on match day, that the match would start? Did you feel, oh, I don't feel normal here? Yeah, I'm lucky enough that I don't... That kind of stuff doesn't really phase me too much. You know, tradition and pre-match kind of stuff. I'll usually have a pasta or I'll have a sandwich. Not too fast. Um, Thai food, probably not. But that's <laughs> what I had, unfortunately. Um, so it doesn't didn't really affect me too much. And um, fortunately, my performances were quite strong over there, despite the pre-match. Um, I'm sure a lot of people would struggle. Um, not being able to have their spaghetti bolognese <laughs> at 12 o'clock before their 5 oh, o'clock. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Fortunately for me, it was quite, it was okay, but yeah. Yeah, I can't even imagine when you have a Champions League match and say you make a decision that is 50-50 or you know it's wrong, one of those things that you'd be sitting in quarantine mulling over it. And yeah. there is no footage. <laughs> you can never find any footage of the Asian Champions League, so... I was waiting for an assessor to message me or Sean to say someone messaged him saying you did the right thing because actually and I think in our first match over there I had a we didn't have VAR which was um, surprising mm -hmm. but group stages we didn't have VAR um, I had to make a decision for uh, on a penalty uh, the goalkeeper encroaching so I was like what do I do because usually with VAR you just verbalise it over the comms and say I think he's over the line and let VAR take it right but in this case, we had no VAR, so the goalkeeper's jumped the line. And I've gone, oh my god, I have to, I have to call this if I don't call <laughs> yeah, it. Saved it obviously. Yeah, and he saved it, and it was Neil Lill at the time, and I was like, oh, if I don't call this, I'm going to get killed. If I do call this, I'm going to get killed. Um, and fortunately, I well, fortunately I called it, and I was vindicated on the footage after after the game. But I didn't know for like two days. I'm like sitting in my room, like what a grinding, nightmare. grinding my teeth, going, oh my God, what, we, what, what could have happened? Because it's, it's almost like career-defining, really, mm. that kind of decision. Yeah. Especially the club was a, a big Malaysian team. And, um, you know, it's, I had maybe 500 friend requests from Malaysians, and they weren't really requests, friend requests. <laughs> um, a lot of abusive messages. But um, and kids at home do change your uh, Instagram to not have your full name if you want to become a top referee because you will get 100 plus messages after a game. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was um, it was very, very nerve-wracking, to say the least. Oh, yeah. Sounds like it. 
yeah, absolutely. Um, it was stressful. But yeah, the right decision was made at the end of the day. And these are the kind of career-defining decisions you make. You have to have um, you know, the strength to back yourself and say, I've seen this, I have to make it. Yes, if I don't make it, I've got, you know, might, might as well not be there sort of thing. So obviously that decision in particular, uh, amongst your general performance in your Champions League games, was really well received. What happened next? Obviously, we're, we're talking about the Olympics, right? So, um, crazy, crazy day um, it was for me when um, I got a text message from one of my colleagues, um, Chris Beath. He said, can you I talk? And I was like, oh, what have I done wrong? I must have done something wrong. <laughs> uh, but he, he, we had a chat and he said, look, my um, one of my assistants has, has gone down injured, unfortunately. And, he, and this assistant's a friend of mine as well. So, I felt bad at the same time. But this was an opportunity for me to um, jump into the the trio for the Olympics. So Chris Beath's team had already been selected for the Olympics. It was a trio of Aussie referees. And the person George is talking about got injured in the preparation. Yeah, unfortunately. So it was a difficult time for them. And and also, you do feel bad. And my instinct straight away was shock. um, And also that, that feeling of... Oh my god! I feel really bad for for this individual that you know they they've been injured and they're going to miss on this fantastic opportunity mm. to go to the mm. Olympics. But then there's so many thoughts going through your mind. You're like, oh my god, does this mean that I'm going to go? Because obviously that's why I'm getting the phone call. And um, he said that look, obviously um, I'm I'm being happy. Uh, AFC are happy to nominate me to replace this this individual. So. Um, yeah, be ready and get ready to go through all the rigmarole <laughs> to get there. And, and, um, and there was a lot of it, a lot of paperwork, a lot of... Um, um, I was on the phone to DHL in Thailand and they spoke zero English most of the time <laughs> to try and get my pass. Uh, it was absolute insanity for about a week to try and organise all the paperwork and all the passes and stuff. It was, there was so much paperwork for the Olympics, as you would expect, being in Olympics games, but Olympic Games, but yeah. What about the practicalities behind it? You left home thinking you'd be gone for four weeks. Yep. And now you're gone for eight to 12 weeks. Yeah, <laughs> yep. absolutely. So I'm very fortunate that my manager is um, an ex-referee and he um, is almost living his dream of being a top referee through me. <laughs> and that's the only reason that I work for him, I think. Um, so he, as soon as I got this phone call, I straight away called him and I said, hey, guess what? I'm going to the Olympics. It wasn't even really a, a conversation of can I go? Yes, yeah. a I'm going to the Olympics, um, and he was he was actually in tears. So my family, when I told them, they were like, "Oh, cool." Like, <laughs> my manager, he was like, "Your dad, your dad's, you know." Your no, my dad didn't, didn't care. He's like, "Whatever. Why aren't you at work? You must work to make money. The refereeing makes does nothing for you." You know, like. Um, yeah, obviously they were happy, but he was in actual tears. So it was, uh, it meant a lot to me. And it means a lot to me to have someone that supports you like that and that can actually help you do reach your dreams and, and touch them almost sort of thing. So yeah, it was, um, yeah, definitely a crazy day that one. And obviously I'd let you, Jack, know straight away. <laughs> a lot of the, a lot of my friends back home were, uh, were worded up straight away, but I was also really worried that things might not eventuate and that I might not be able to go because of you know, COVID, the paperwork, um, you know, anything might have got in the way. COVID, like if I, if I got, got the virus, you know, there was a hundred thousand yeah. cases a day or something stupid in Bangkok where I was. And it came down to the why, didn't it? Was it the visa or the passport or something like that? For the Olympics, you had to have 
your, your visa was essentially the Olympics pass that you have to wear on you the whole time when you're at the Olympics. And I did not have this until I literally got to the airport and I had to, I was on the phone to this driver who spoke zero English and saying, meet me at the airport, please come meet me now. And I had to pay them a bonus and all this kind of stuff. And it was just insanity. I was like, I could not believe what was happening. Um, so you left your hotel in Bangkok, yeah. heading for Japan, heading to the airport, not knowing if you could actually get on the plane. Essentially, yes. Wow. How did that feel? Yeah, the heart was racing the whole, <laughs> whole drive over. And, um, hey, hang on a minute. You said before that mentally you were okay. <laughs> Worst time to have a sliding doors moment. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and the pass was supposed to come to my hotel room on that day that I was leaving. And then DHL called saying, oh, the driver's gone back home today. He's, he was too busy. <laughs> oh, and God. Can you imagine how angry I was at that moment yeah. in time? And um, just communicating was so hard without me trying to be like, I was really calm. I was totally calm, <laughs> as you can imagine. I'm a very calm person. But um, yeah, just, it got, we got there in the end. Let's put it that way. I, I did not know if I was going to get on the plane, but I did. So yeah. um, happy days, uh, a few Thai bar extra paid, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was. George, you arrive at the Olympics, you arrive in Tokyo. I can only imagine the emotions you're experiencing, whether that's fear, uncertainty, excitement. It took me probably three hours to get out of the airport because of all the paperwork. You had to go through all these stations. I didn't know where I was going. Um, so yeah, it, it, it was probably like five or six stations, including the, the COVID test, which was a different kind of test. You had to like spit in a tube right. and you, hadn't, you couldn't have eaten or drinking anything. So you spit in the tube and then you go, Okay, here you go. Wait around in the room, waiting, 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 and then... So it was the rapid antigen tests? Yeah, yeah whatever it was called, um, something like that, yeah. Um, but it was um, definitely an experience, especially being solo, because the other guys obviously got mm. to fly in together. Mm, they were there already? Uh, no, I got in before them. Oh. So yeah, um, I went straight from Bangkok and they'd come right. from Brisbane. Uh, so I was solo and nobody else had obviously come from Thailand, so I was not knowing where I was or what I was doing. And I just had to ask all these questions. And luckily everybody there was really good. Um, they, they spoke really good English and they really understood what everyone was going through with all this COVID testing and stuff. So maybe close to three hours to get out of the airport. And then after I got out of the airport, got in the cab and I was on the way to the hotel. I sort of breathed a sigh of relief and I was like, I think I'm here. I think I am. I think everything's okay. As long as nothing happens, I'm, I'm, I'm there. So uh, the relief and then excitement sort of started to build up a bit. And this was my first FIFA tournament ever. So I didn't really know what to expect. Totally. I've obviously done a lot of AFC tournaments. Um, but in terms of FIFA land, I hadn't really done anything. So mm -hmm. yeah, I was really, really excited, I guess, to say it was the right word to say. Yeah. So you were coming into Japan, which is the host country of the Olympics. Were the only people coming into the country with you people who were there to compete, the athletes? Yeah, I think I spoke to a couple of people at the airport and um, I didn't actually meet an athlete. I think I met all support staff. There was a guy going to Sapporo, which is up north, uh, to set up the VAR. I'd never met before or heard before, but um, yeah, I, I didn't get to see any athletes at that time. So I was kind of like, oh, is the Olympics on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, because Japan was in full lockdown anyway. They weren't letting in any fan or anything. That's what I thought. You're not going to be coming in on a commercial flight with 
holiday makers. I can, I can only imagine what it would, would have been like without COVID mm. at the airport for oh. Olympians coming in in Japan. Because usually you go to Japan and you do a game without COVID times and you walk out into the pitch as referees and they start clapping you and you, there's 50,000 people clapping you and you're like, wow. Yeah. Like imagine that in Australia, probably never ever gonna happen. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think anywhere else, but in Japan they would do that. So I can only imagine the athletes coming into Japan usually would be um, getting cheered. There'd be thousands of people at the airport, you know, waving banners and stuff like that. But it was just a really, really um, somber experience. There was nobody at the airport mm-hmm. apart from yeah, at, the, at that time, it was just support staff. But yeah, uh, it was um, it was crazy. It was completely different to usual. So you, once you got out of the airport, you got in a taxi, made your way to the hotel, checked in, the usual. Then you got to see your team, Chris Beath, Anton. For, I got there way before they did, actually, maybe a couple of hours. Well, way before. A couple of hours beforehand. And um, my room, I got to, I was anticipating it would be the same as Bangkok, where we get just stuck in the room the whole time. And I opened my door and it was a box because Japanese hotels are literally just a box. <laughs> That's all they are. Um, they're nice, but very, very small. And I was like, oh God, how am I going to get through the next three weeks in this tiny room? Anyway, we were lucky enough when they did turn up, um, we were allowed to see each other. We were allowed to socialize with other referees and other people in the hotel, which was okay. So um, yeah, that was the next next point of call. Got to catch up and at least speak to some people, some Australian people, yeah, again, which is good. And when did you meet your new colleagues? Not just the Australians. Obviously, the Olympics is an international tournament. When did you meet the other efforts? So we were, were hotel-bound for the first day um, after our tests. We had to be tested first and come back negative. And then we, the next morning, once everybody had turned up, we had a um, we had our first debrief, I guess, um, with Kari Sites and... At that time, Massimo Bissako is the head of referees. He didn't turn up for the first couple of days, but yeah, it was Kari Sites that was there at the time. So yeah, um, got to meet a few new faces. Um, it's really surreal seeing people you see on TV and mm. um, you just never met before. And it's just, everyone's just so lovely, aren't they? You know, like you see the people that are essentially celebrities in some countries and just normal people, down-to-earth people. And I'm sure you guys have met them on the podcasts a lot of times with this they are normal people. We are normal people. <laughs> we aren't celebrities, really. I think we talk about that a lot on the pod, Alley. We really try and discover the humans behind the whistle. And I'm sure when you're spending four or five weeks with these people like you did, George, at the start, it's this is so-and-so who refed at the Euros. They refed, and it, well, as a football fan, you go, oh, cool, you refereed Germany versus whoever, and I watched it a few weeks ago. But then... Once a few weeks pass, you, you get to know these people. You say, oh, this is my mate. You can talk openly to each other. You can share a beer. It doesn't matter if you're a referee, a VAR, a physio. It's irrelevant, really, because people form normal, genuine human relationships. I think that's the essence of my life on the line and what we wanted to achieve with this podcast. Refereeing is what we do. It's not who we are. There's so much more beyond that we saw in the uniform. We are humans. We are Jack, Ale, George. It's not the referee, the, the assistant referee, the fourth official, the VAR. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's just so crazy being in that room of, I think it was almost 100 refs in the end, including VARs, including um, the support staff that was there as well. And it's big room. Everybody's got their red polo on. And yeah. it's like, wow, look at all these people. Look at all these people, you know, like 
I know them. I know. I know her. I know him. I saw her do the World Cup final. You know, yeah. like it's just it's it's crazy. Um, it really is a. In terms of moments in ref- my refereeing career, it's that walking into that room and seeing it full of referees from around the world is one of the one of the best moments. Just that feeling of being in that team, being part of that team. Did it feel surreal? Did it feel like? I've made it, I'm here. It hasn't even sunk in yet now. The, the <laughs> whole thing hasn't sunk in. And and uh, that first announcement that I was going to go, from there on, it's, it's been surreal the whole time. It hasn't, I, I just, I can't believe it happened kind of thing. You know, you, you go back to the start of your refereeing career and you think, am I going to re- referee like a top level game, like an A-League game yeah. or something like that? that? That's the goal, right? Like FIFA is you know, like a, a pipe dream. And then you think about a World Cup as a complete pipe dream and an Olympic Games as a referee because it's 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 sort of every four years, it's also just as difficult as getting to as a World Cup kind of thing. So, so we all sums it up 100%. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. <laughs> it's really fantastic. We can tell we're sitting here with George, but George's facial expressions, emotions, it's such an important moment in George's career. It's It's fantastic to see. It's exciting. You just touched on what was next, George. So you had your testing done. You had the first seminar. What did day-to-day look like at the Olympics before you got a game? How was it? Yeah, the, the first, I think the seminar went for about five or six days. I can't remember the exact amount of days, but it was a seminar, essentially. You, you'd get in there and the first day was um, a briefing on what the tournament's going to be like, what we're going to do, um, you know, all the usual stuff that you'd get at any tournament or any for any competition, um, the competition rules and all that kind of stuff. Um, the next day was the first day of training, mm-hmm. and I've been to other tournaments before where you know the training's pretty relaxed. You know, yeah, we go a little bit hard. It might be an hour or so. At the Olympic Games, the warm-up was almost an hour. I was like, my God, what am I going to go through here? Like, well, you, you definitely got to be warm after yeah, that. Yeah, like, well, it was already warm. It was 35 degrees and 100% humidity. Welcome to hell. Yeah, welcome to Japan in summer. Um, but yeah, it was. I was really, really gobsmacked at how fit everyone was. Um, the females were running rings around the, the males, which is amazing to watch. And it was just um, so many fit people and you feel like this is awesome you know mm. like c- c- competitive juices are coming out oh it would be so motivating to be out there with that group of people yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and it was good for me because I'd already been up for four five six weeks at that at the Asian Champions League and I was at my sort of peak fitness which is great so um, it was it felt competitive but it wasn't it was it was really really just what was expected for you as, as a FIFA official to be at that level of fitness and to um, have a good 30 to 40 minute warm up, um, you know, you're playing games and stuff in the warm up with the balls, passing them around and stuff like that. But um, yeah, really, really intense training. Um, it, it got it built up from the first day was maybe a five or six kilometer session to seven or eight kilometer sessions for two two hours or so. Um, and the fitness check they called, which was um, for the Olympics, was above category one level fitness test. What is that? Yeah, yeah, for the, for the assistance, it was the Ariat um, for myself. So at 16.55 or something like that was the level. It was, it was look, you, you expected to be that fit at least. But when the heat's on... You're at the Olympics. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you should be, if they tell you to do 18, they tell you to do 19, do maybe you just do it, man. Let's, you just do it, right? And um, 
for the referees it was the dynamic yo-yo which was around the track and we finished our area before them and went down and cheered them on and it was you could tell it was they were sweating you know it was so hot tension was running high yeah definitely you know and, and the 35 degrees <laughs> yeah, yeah it was really tough and it was like yep yeah, fitness checks done into training let's do some practical training let's do some more training okay Training, training, training. Yeah. So every day for the seminar was um, training in the morning for at least two hours, maybe three. It'd be like a nine o'clock to a 12 o'clock kind of session. And then you'd go back to the hotel, have your lunch, relax for a bit and go back to the classroom for three or four hours. The first session you just touched on, the nine to 12, that was physical, running, pushing yourself, cardio wise. But there was also some practical stuff in there. Definitely. Um, the first few days were more based around the physical side. But then the further we got into the tournament, it was all practical almost. And it was just next level kind of stuff. And we just don't see that here in Australia, unfortunately. We'd love to see it. What does a practical training session look like, especially for an assistant? Because as a referee, you focus on where to move around the penalty area, moving in different situations. But especially for an assistant, that would be so particular. Absolutely. They'd hired um, a under-23 Japanese local team, which was probably the level of an A-League team here. They were so good, so quick, so skillful. And I don't know if they were paying them or not, but good on them. They, they turned up every day at nine o'clock and they'd be there and the, the refereeing coaching team would give them all these drills to, to set out for us. So like you said, for the referees, it'd be movement around the penalty area especially. And I think they really, really focused on getting working really hard to get to your position and getting to the like the, the penalty area lines where the assistant can't see and you need to be mm. there right for the inside outside yeah. or penalty decision that was their real focus for the practical and it was almost day in day out the exact same kind of stuff it's very similar sorry to jump in george but that's something we saw at the euros when we were doing our euros analysis we commented a lot on how it was very much the refs were belt through the middle third of the pitch but then when they were at the penalty area, they would sort of hover. And that sounds like it's the same as what was being taught in Tokyo. Yeah, definitely fighting for your position to get to that penalty area. And, and then again, that adjustment, just adjusting all the time around that penalty area to get to the right spots and thinking about what is the right spot to be in? Because it's, well, it's all well and good to be super fit and getting to what you think is the right position, but if you're looking at one thing and then there's another thing happening on the other side of the park, you know, it, it doesn't help you. So yeah. it, was, it was really, really amazing practical stuff. Um, couldn't recommend it any higher if we could try and get that kind of stuff done somewhere here in Oz. But yeah, um, for assistance, it was um, basically, you know, your bread and butter offsides. Yeah. Um, but also we had, our, we had our comms in the whole time. So I was about to ask, VAR, was that in with your training? Yep, VAR, they had a, uh, they call it an M-bar, mobile VAR. Mm-hmm. Um, so they probably had, I don't know how many cameras there were, but at least eight, I would have thought. And um, they had a VAR in the box. And if you referee made a mistake during the practical drills, they would say, you know, the usual process. Mm-hmm. Can you please check this? And then they'd go to the screen and then blow the whistle and go to... So they had the chance to practice, which is something which, to be honest, strikes fear into my heart. Having done one A-League game... But I've had pretty much no practice whatsoever using VAR. Uh, before the next A-League season, I'm going to have to put time aside to practice because I've never had to do it. I don't want the first time I have to use it, and it's inevitable that I will have to use VAR because I'm going to make mistakes, but I don't want that first time to be on 
live TV. Yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of the referees there as well have come from countries where VAR isn't a thing, or they mm. barely have seen VAR apart from Is tournaments that... they've been to. Okay, so they're not used to refereeing with VAR in their home comps. They're not overly familiar with protocols. So it's a huge change. We've had it for, what, five years here in Australia? But for the refs to rock up to Tokyo, which is probably the biggest tournament of their lives, and then to have VAR, and especially with the females, because I'm not sure any female league in the world has VAR currently. Wouldn't have thought so, but yeah, they're definitely, especially the females, are very strong mm. and very well uh, versed in the in the protocol around the VAR, which is fantastic to see. And it was really good to watch. And I mean, we can probably talk a bit later about what happens on match day, but mm. um, yeah, just watching them and hearing their comms was just so really, really good. Um, it, it's that training really really helped i think for especially for for males and females for the olympics to be honest it would have also been a bit different maybe not so much for you but for an australian referee because if you think of the number of cameras that we have here in australia versus the number of cameras you would have had at the olympics because you you had eight for training and i'm pretty sure it's a similar number to the to the number we have here for a game. Yeah, yeah. no, no, I think we got less. Here. <laughs> yeah. So, so in Europe, there's like 16 cameras for VAR or something like that, or even more. So that's probably what you had there for a game. So even that difference, especially if you are the VAR, that would be massive because if you go from picking angles from five cameras to 16, it's a massive change. Talk about paradox of choice. The more choices you have, the harder it is to make a choice. That would be so challenging. Absolutely, yeah. It's just, I, I don't want to be a VAR. <laughs> the stress I see them under, it's like, oh God, how can you do it? Yeah. Um, it's not an easy job, that's for sure. You went through the preparation, which sounds fantastic and that you couldn't have really been better prepared to perform. Now, first game, how did you find out about it? Tell us about that. Yeah, so the first game, um, it's funny, when you're over there, you have a lot of downtime, right? And um, we would have our Starbucks every day as a trio. <laughs> and, and, and Kate was there as well, so she'd join us as well. So the four of us would have our Starbucks. And Kate Jakowitz is also a female Australian official who was at the Olympics too. Yeah, she had her own trio uh, with the Japanese and the Korean assistant. Um, but, yeah, so... We, We've got a lot of downtime. We'll have our daily Starbucks catch up for an hour in the rooms. And um, what do we talk about? Oh, what's our first game going to be? We'll go through all the appointments. We can't do this group because Australia's in this group. You know, we can't do these games probably because New Zealand's going to be involved in those. So we went through the games and it was like, oh, Brazil game. Maybe we can do Brazil. So the, the, first, the first match we were lucky enough to get we was... Um, Mexico versus France, and you're like, wow. <laughs> yeah, big first game. Yeah, Mexico's last Olympic gold medalist, um, and France is France, you know, in powerhouse of world football, and I'm just gobsmacked, you know. Um, when you got Massimo Bissaka dropping the apps for you, and, and he says that, and you're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so do they still do the appointments, like in Kill the Referee, with uh, all the referees, Standing in a room, Buzaka stands up and goes, appointments are this game, this trio, this game. Yeah, he pretty much reads through the list and doesn't pronounce any name properly, but, <laughs> you know, don't blame the guy because they're very difficult. But yeah, it was, uh, you're waiting, you're waiting for your name to get called. And luckily that was, I think the second game announced. So we're like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> what a relief. Yeah, you're like, well, relief, but also like, 
wow, you know, it's then your hands start shaking and you're kind of like, okay, this is us now, yeah. you know, this is what we're going to do. Um, and it's just like, never had a game as big as that in my life. You know, you, you've had Asian Champions League games, you've had A-League games, finals and stuff like that, World Cup qualifiers, friendlies, Liverpool, Manchester United, Chelsea, friendlies and stuff. Nothing compares to an actual competitive match between Mexico and France. Mm. It's next level. And I think Beatty took it really, really, <laughs> really, really, really well. But um, also inside, I think he was also really, really, really excited and, and nervous. Um, I mean, be worried if he, if he didn't. Absolutely. We do it because we love it at the end. For so. sure. Um, and, and from there, I mean... I think they announced that match day minus two. So you get your one day and then you get one day before and then your match. So what do we do in those two days, I guess, is what you're going to ask next. I'll get in there before you do. <laughs> um, season pro. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Basically, match day minus one is match day minus one training that anybody would do normally. You know, you do your own thing. They didn't, they didn't even really mandate it. They just said, as long as you're comfortable, you do what you want to do. Um, they had an actual um, analyst there for us. Um, his name was Gian Vito from Italy. And he had gone through all the previous friendly matches in the last year and a half of each team, the each 23 team, and um, had provided clips for us and a, and a PowerPoint presentation. So we spent about an hour and a half with him and just went through all these clips. And Yeah, what, how, did, what did he cover? Um, tactics mainly. It was all really tactical kind of stuff. Uh, the first, the bulk of it was tactical um, corners, how they take them, where they swing them in or out to, or um, you know, how they take free kicks, how they defend. So um, we talk about Brazil. Brazil defend in a zonal manner, whereas uh, France were man on Mexico. man. Well, no, so no. I'm saying we, we'd, we'd seen in Brazil's oh, yeah, the way Brazil sorry. did. Yeah, yeah. And the thing we noticed a lot from Mexico actually was that they would press right up as soon as. Uh, their opposition would get the ball they'd, they'd full press like a basketball game full court press mm -hmm. right up to halfway and not let them out and they they were just like jackals on top of the players Just they would not let them get through whereas France were just more happy to just control the game build up build up so these kind of things that we'd see from from the analyst was amazing and you do your own analysis on matches on A-League Jack knows as well um, you look at the teams and you know how they sort of play but this was amazing kind of um the teams that you don't really see, you, you get to see their set pieces, their corners, their, their how they defend, how they attack, and their offsides, their fouls, their yellow cards, how they commit these kind of stuff. And especially when it comes to fouls, where they commit them on the pitch. And mm -hmm. you see a lot of the teams these days, especially the younger teams in the 23s, they, they'll commit those fouls way up before halfway and yeah, stop their it's half the pitch it's it's like the strikers are the ones it's doing it's the breaking fouls. up a promising attack before breaking up a promising attack it's really really and clever and this is where you've got to have a feel for the game right because in terms of laws of the game it won't tick any of the boxes for a, a spar it's too up high the pitch too early to be a spar but good enough to give time to their team to come back and cover so yeah Talk us through that. It's definitely tactical, and, and I've noticed it in a lot of other games as well, and it's so hard to manage for a referee. Yeah. Because it's different players doing it. You can't give persistent infringing because, well, you can, but you can't. Yeah. It's, it's hard to argue that you do it because it's one guy doing it, another guy mm. doing it. You know, it's very difficult. So as a referee, you have to really be on top of it. And I think the good referees let a lot go and have a really high bar and let them get through it and then almost let it get to the point where they 
they're allowed to get that yellow card when it does come through, when it does get broken down. But it's it's definitely something that's creeped in, and especially at the Olympics for Mexico, especially in that game, was um, was something they really really look at for us. And you're so prepared when you're going into a game and you see this all, all this stuff. You're like, I know how the game's going to go, mm. and um, it, that's exactly how it went. It went a little bit different to what we expected in terms of um, the scoreline in the end, because Mexico got up, I think, three one in the end, um, and they were just really dominant. But because of the way they played, and we knew how they were going to play. So we were prepared as a team to know mm-hmm. how they're going to play like that. Such a big tactical advantage to have as a referee. So many times you just spend the first 20 minutes of a game trying to understand how a team plays, but knowing that already is just like, I'm just going to do my job because I know what they're going to do. Yeah, so Be- Beathy knew almost where he could position himself because he knew yeah. usually he's a really high line referee. I'll, I'll go right at the top because I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable there. And he's fit. He's fit, yeah. yeah. So he'll do a high line, but... Knowing Mexico is going to be attacking those defenders straight away, I'm going to sit at halfway and, and watch. Mm. And and as assistants, you know where when to focus exactly. Well, you're always focused anyway, but you know yeah, what so. to focus on, <laughs> right? And you know where that point of contact is going to come up, yeah, so you yeah. can focus on that, right? It's uh, it was really, really, really good stuff to see. It's, I guess, it's the the difference between. It's elite football. That's what elite refereeing is. Elite football requires elite referees, and elite referees need to know these things. Yeah, you need to bring yourself up to that level. Yeah, absolutely. Follow Ref Coach on social media. Look for Ref Coach on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay up to date with all of the latest from the Ref Coach world. Game day one went really well, Mexico-France. You've given us some info about how the preparation went and the game had gone really well for you as a trio. And then match day two came in, no appointment. It's probably expected. Then match day three came in, again no appointment, which was probably unexpected for you and the team. But then match day four came in and you did have a game. How did that feel? That match day three you didn't get a game after having a strong performance in your first, how did that impact the team? Yeah, of course we were expecting maybe to get another group match um, and you sort of, every time the appointments come up, you're like, this could be us kind of thing. Um, you're not, you try not to get um, you know, down about it, that you don't have another match, but you, you take it as an opportunity to go out and train again and train hard and, and show that you're ready to go for the next match when they, when they do appoint you, right? Um, yeah, so right, match day two, probably not expecting. Match day three, we were maybe expecting a game, especially after the first game when, when I think as a trio we did an amazing job. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, we didn't let it get us down. We said, you know, we're going to be ready for the next match if we do get another match. And they, they held us on for the quarters, fortunately. And um, So some refs were released after the group stages? Yes, yeah, I believe a few were. Um, and we were lucky enough to get a quarterfinal and... It was funny because we only thought we could do one of the matches. And I can't remember, it was Spain versus someone. Um, we, again, we sit down at the coffee. Yeah, and go the yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was the two matches. Pull we, up the map and go, what can we do? There was two matches we couldn't do politically. And then there was Egypt versus Brazil. Egypt just knocked out Australia in the, in the, in the game beforehand. So we're like, oh, they're not going to give us that game. You know, revenge game. <laughs> um, so when the first app of the Spain game... Um, that we were expecting could be ours um, wasn't us uh, my, I sort of dropped a little bit I was like oh what's going to happen you know, is, is that us done you know? 
Um, then the last, very last appointment was Egypt vs Brazil, Team Chris Beath, and it was like, wow, awesome, Brazil, you know, <laughs> like how many people get to referee Brazil? And there were some serious players in that Brazil side, you know, Danny Alves, Richarlison was playing, who's a, a Premier League player at Everton. They were stacked in terms of talent. There was every player could, could play at the top level. They were really, really good. And yeah, that's when the nerves also kick in again, because you're like, <laughs> wow, <laughs> you know, I'm going to get to referee or run a line for this guy, you know? Like, Imagine Danny Alves just yelling at you all of a sudden, you're like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had a few big name players yell at me in the past, so um, yeah, I'm used to that. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was really good to get another game, quarterfinal, and I think our goal going there, or Chris, uh, Chris sort of said to us, was our goal was to perform well in the group stage matches, and then if we can get another match, amazing. Bonus, that's, yeah. that's it, you know, like that's, that's our goal get through that and to get a quarter that was an all-time high for all of us at the time I was like yep amazing let's go out and smash it again and, and do what we did in the last game so fortunately enough we went out and we did another fantastic job um you know I don't think we missed anything in the match mm-hmm. had some really good decisions mm-hmm. and um got through smoothly then it was back to the hotel it was high fives crack a beer yeah there was um a, a bit of that um, a few Kieran's in your mind did you think you guys were finished then? I was hoping we weren't, um, especially after we performed so well. I thought we've given ourselves every chance to go and maybe do a third versus fourth or something like that, whatever. The way the appointments fall, um, I thought I was optimistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the others were a little bit more like, oh yeah, maybe we're done, you know, but so be it. You know, awesome, we've done as much as we can do. And we did crack some beers after that game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah as you do. Um, it, was, it was good. It was good to let our hair down for a bit and um yeah having trained so hard in that lead up that it took like two beers to be passed out (laughs) yeah that was really really good and then what happened after that you there you're optimistic Anton and Beathy were a bit more reserved but obviously you're still going to training every day I think Beathy's main thing to us as a trio was you turn up every day and you look like you're fresh you look like you're ready to go on a game on that Mm -hmm. day it uh, doesn't matter if you're absolutely cooked from the night before when you when you, you know you've had a game or whatever. You turn up to class, you know you're fresh, you're, you're looking good, you're happy, you got a big smile on your face, you're happy to be there, and you're showing them that you're ready to go. Mm-hmm. And that was the the key thing for us. We 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 wanted to do everything we could and go over and above and do that. Um, there were a few teams released after that as well, a few referring teams released. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were lucky enough to stay on. We were like, oh, okay, well, maybe we are. Some, some big names as well were yeah. released at that point, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, when you're seeing some teams going home, the European guys <laughs> going home, a few South American guys going home, you're like, well, mm. they obviously rate us. And it's a really good feeling to be kept on to the tournament uh, all the way towards the end. Um, you kept your head down, George. You're training. You're turning up with smiles on your faces, following the ethos of Team Beef, putting yourselves in the best position, which sounds like a real strength of, of you guys. And then it gets to the point, final appointments. Uh, Massimo, Massimo Bissaka has arrived at this point. What was going on? Yeah, I mean, obviously we weren't expecting a semi-final, mm. so those apps were like, out of the window, we just had a quarter-final, so... For us to get retained past the semi-finals was an achievement again, and then real, real excitement. We weren't really expecting anything either way, a gold medal match or a third versus fourth. We were sort of like happy to be there, and then maybe Beathy will get a fourthy, and we'll be happy for him kind of thing. Third versus fourth got announced, and we weren't on it, and that was the day before the gold medal match, of course. So um, 
there in the app that hadn't been announced was the gold the medal final. match. Yeah. Um, and every day in the classroom, Pierre Luigi Colina, who everybody that's listened to this surely knows, um, is probably you know the biggest face in world football refereeing of all time. I would have thought um, he was listening into every um, uh, classroom session. He was online. He'd give us a pep talk at the end of each session as well. He was the one that was uh, given the uh, the opportunity to announce the appointments for the gold medal match. And you're like, I've never met this guy before, but um, <laughs> hopefully he knows who I am. <laughs> But um, yeah, he, he's come onto the big screen and the big smile is gone. Referees for the gold medal match will be Australian for the first time. And we were just like, wow. Oh, I'm gone. I'm Australian. Yeah. <laughs> is that me? That is me, right? Um, and before all this, it was almost like the US team had gone home. Ishmael's team had gone yeah. home. Um, we were fully expecting them to get the gold medal match. Really strong team. Amazing bunch of guys performed really well um politically thing brazil versus spain you wouldn't think a south american Mm. referee would get the game or a european referee and it was almost like we're the last one standing so for me (laughs) that whole day when i found out that ishmael's team had gone home i was like wow i think we're gonna get this this is happening yeah i think i told you guys as well i was like this could be happening right like it was trying not to jinx it but like yeah this could be happening and um this is happening and never in my wildest dreams did i imagine i was going to go to an olympic games first of all yeah (laughs) um and then i got to the olympic games i was like we've got france versus mexico (laughs) amazing whoa (laughs) and then brazil versus egypt also also awesome and it's like wow brazil Yeah. yeah i'm doing brazil and then it's like oh my god um, now the team Austra- team Australia is doing uh, the gold medal match, and it's like it's still when you say that it's still it's still completely surreal. It's just like this didn't happen. Did this happen? Like how am I so lucky to be there? But um, yeah, it's just wow, what a journey from having to pay a bonuses to a Bangkok driver to get <laughs> there. <laughs> To referee in the Olympic final. If I knew this, I'd probably give him an extra bonus as well, you know. Yeah. Wow. Um, what an experience, right? How many times have you watched that game? Once. Once? Once, and not even fully. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's funny. So I probably should go back and watch it. <laughs> well, it was just next level. Um, those two days, obviously, you almost had to turn the phone off mm. because... Um, that night I obviously texted to my closest friends um, and let them know and obviously my manager was pulling his eyes out <laughs> but um, yeah it was crazy that you, you let a few people know and obviously the word spreads back mm. home um, your phone blows up and it's almost like I, I, I it doesn't affect me too much social media and, and um, this kind of stuff it doesn't affect me fortunately but um I can imagine Beathy sort of said, oh, I have to turn the phone off for a bit because I'll, I'll go back to... It was no word of a lie. There was almost 100 people that you had to reply back to from messages. It's beautiful. It is. And it was it was love from everyone back in Australia, even like social media and, you know, how much they hate referees in yeah. general, right? Like, you celebrate their achievement. And we've seen that with Jared Gillette getting his first Premier League match when an Australian does get to or does perform at the top level like you guys did, I think people really do tip the proverbial hat and do say, you know, 
we might not agree with you when we watch you every week in the A-League domestically, but you're an Aussie doing it on the world stage. You must be doing something right. You know, we do work really, really hard. It's, it's funny that I sort of say that I'm lucky to, to have been there, and it's, it is absolute luck. It's a fluke that I made where I was. And You say it's a fluke, George, but you've put yourself in a position to get lucky. If you hadn't been in Bangkok for the Champions League, being fit, performing, doing well with Sean, if you'd performed poorly there, you wouldn't have gone to the Olympics. So you didn't know that you were putting yourself in that position, but if you hadn't gone out there, hadn't prepared, hadn't performed well, you wouldn't have got to the Olympics. It's as simple as that. So, yeah, there was a huge stroke of luck that came your way, but you deserved to be there. You'd worked hard and you'd put yourself in the best position. You don't get lucky if you don't work hard. You never, you never know. But as long as you are there and you're ready, when that stroke of luck happens, well, you better be ready because if you're not, you're just going to blow it. it. It's a lesson for everyone. You think, oh, I'm only on this game as a fourth official. But what if the referee gets injured? Yeah, and that's the thing I say to all referees coming through is refereeing is a war of attrition and you have to like just literally put up with a lot, a lot of bad stuff that goes wrong. Um, and you just have to keep eating that dirt every time, every step of the way and doing all the hard yards. Mm. And I mean, you said if I wasn't in Bangkok, if I wasn't in Uzbekistan on a drip in my hotel room, um, yeah, doing yeah, under this. 23s qualifiers match, couple of years ago on your own yeah on my own and thinking about probably going to die um (laughs) (laughs) and i was sick for a month later right like these kind of you go back all the way and you think about if i wasn't doing all this national youth league if i didn't attend all these meetings uh, on the mpl or all this kind of stuff if i didn't accept these games you just it's all that hard work and it's all from the bottom up it's Mm. it's ridiculous um, how much stuff that we as referees sacrifice mm. um, in our personal yeah. lives and in our professional lives to be, to go where we are going. And Jack will get to know this a bit more moving forward. But um, it's just, it, for me, that was my, it was like, yes, I've, there's a reason why I've done this. Yeah. There's a reason why I've sacrificed all this. I've lost so many friends, honestly. You, you, I, I can tell you I was best man at my friend's wedding and I, I, don't, I don't speak to him anymore. It's like these kinds of things. You lose these people in your life, but it's also gratifying that you, you reach where you do. Yeah. So You can only join the dots afterwards. You can never do that before. You will not know until you get there and then you look back and you realize everything I've done, the mistakes and the good choices, they've all led me here. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, Jack said it before, surreal, absolutely surreal. Crazy stuff. <laughs> George, uh, it was incredible to listen you tell us your journey and the story about how you, you ended up going and refereeing the, the gold medal match at the Olympics. It, you literally made me feel like I was there with you from paying bonuses to the Bangkok driver until the, the very end of the journey when, when you got the appointments. It was such an emotional journey and, and you can tell you silly now about, about it all happening. I have one last question. I want to take you back to that gold medal match in the tunnel you're about to walk out. 
How was it? Oh, it's just the nerves. The, you, you've never been as nervous as that in your life. And I was a lot of the times I was thinking, how am I going to do this? <laughs> it's Brazil versus Spain. It's gold medal match. How? Like a, millions and millions of people are watching this game. How do you? How are you going to get through this? And I just kept going back and thinking, it's yellow versus red. And there's no crowd there, which really helped. True. It really did help um, mentally, just going out there and just smashing the game and just thinking yellow versus red, this guy versus that guy, whatever it is. But when um, Gianni Infantino <laughs> walks down the stairs and he says, oh, good luck today, just walks past you and you're like, that was that, was that guy. Wow. <laughs> you know, you're like, um, I, you didn't even notice who it was until he walks past you. You're like, oh, okay really cool <laughs> um, yeah and then you're like you're standing next to all these big name players you know Danny Alves is literally right next to you on mm-hmm. your shoulder um, worth millions and millions of dollars it's, yeah. it's it's crazy it really is and you're just like how did I get here how the hell did I get here the boy from Camberwell High yep is that's that it the <laughs> Olympic yeah. final yep correct um, yeah wow <laughs> that's all I can say <laughs> As Ali just touched on, it's been fantastic to have you on, George, and really delve into the detail of what the Olympics was and how you got there. But what really stands out for me above everything else is putting yourself in that position to get lucky. Yeah, people could say you got lucky, you got there because somebody got injured, and I hope you don't mind me saying that, but I wholeheartedly believe you only got there because you put yourself in that position to get lucky. You worked hard. You put the hard yards in here in Australia. You put the hard yards in in Bangkok. You went through it all from training in the heat to chasing a DHL driver at Bangkok airport. But it was all worth it. You've achieved something most referees can only dream of. There's a really small list of referees who have done that game and you'll forever be on that list of referees with the with your team, of course. So I think it's testament to your hard work, but also for everyone listening to this podcast, the lesson is put yourself in a position to get lucky and then make the most of every opportunity because you never know what could be around the corner. You never know what could come of it. It's been fantastic chatting, George really really enjoyed it i've enjoyed delving into all of that your journey thanks so much for your time and once again congratulations from all of us on such an incredible achievement thanks guys really appreciate it thanks for having me if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more hit the subscribe button for more referee education Join our Facebook group and become a RefCoach member for free at refcoach.org. If you like the work we do, you can support us by purchasing a RefCoach whistle to show that you're part of the RefCoach community when you're out on the pitch.